0: Welcome to UAB MedCast, a continuing education podcast for medical professionals, providing knowledge that is moving medicine forward here's Melanie Cole. Welcome to UAB MedCast. I'm Melanie Cole and joining me today we have a panel with Dr. Daniel Chu. He's an associate professor and colorectal surgeon and Dr. Kirk Russ. He's an assistant professor, a gastroenterologist and a clinical educator with primary focus in inflammatory bowel disease. They're both at UAB Medicine and they're here to offer an update on Crohn's disease and colitis. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us today. Dr. Russ, I'd like to start with you. Can you start a little bit about Crohn's and colitis today? What you've been seeing in the trends, the prevalence, tell us a little bit about it.
1: Sure, and thanks for having me, Melanie. So, both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease have a similar prevalence, and it's anywhere from probably close to 200 per 100,000 people in the U.S. for both diseases, and there's estimated to be over, I think, around 3 million patients living with inflammatory bowel disease in the U.S. alone. As far as trends go... We historically have seen things continue to rise. Some more recent data would suggest that maybe it's kind of plateauing in the Western world, but we still are seeing rising incidences of both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease in previous areas that didn't have very much incidence, like South America, the Middle East, Asia. So we're definitely still seeing rising incidences there. And I think Dan could probably chime in on this, but we there's no shortage of patients here. We see a whole lot of patients with inflammatory bowel disease.
2: Yeah, so I absolutely agree with everything that Dr. Russ had said about the incidence and the prevalence. Definitely over 3 million people in the United States, growing across the world. And what's interesting, too, within the United States that I think we're seeing is that there are certain sort of racial and ethnic groups where we're also seeing more inflammatory bowel disease. You know, this is one of those diseases that classically we thought it was isolated to certain populations in Western Europe and in the United States, but we're seeing it, the incidence really grow in. Populations that previously we really didn't think would have a lot of IBD, populations such as Asian-Americans, African-Americans, Latino-Americans. So we're seeing it in these groups, which is important to point out.
0: Well, it certainly is. And we're gonna get into some theories that you both might have. But before we do, Dr. Chu, how has treatment and the thoughts of treatment evolved over the last decade or so? Tell us a little bit about what we used to think, but what's different and any exciting updates that you have to share with us.
2: Yeah, so I'll be reprise some perspective just from a colorectal surgeon's point of view. Crohn's and ulcerative colitis has always been a very complicated disease. It's not just medical management of inflammatory bowel disease, but also surgical management. And so I think the treatment strategy has certainly continued to grow as people have realized it is entirely multidisciplinary, it is very much a team approach. And I think the more coordinated the team can be, the better the care. And what I mean by that is that this management requires, I think, a IBD gastroenterologist like Dr. Russ. It requires certainly, calorical colorectal input from people like myself, but it also requires nutritionalists and pharmacists, even a psychologist. It requires a whole group of people with multiple
1: expertise to really handle and treat IBD well. Yeah, and I'd just like to add there on the medication front, I think we've We've really come a long way since infliximab or Remicade was approved in 1998, and we're well into the biologic and now small molecule therapy era. And we've really shifted from focusing mainly on patient symptoms and improving those to now more stringent endpoints like endoscopic or mucosal healing. And now even considering is histologic healing an endpoint that we're shooting for. So we've come a long way and our goals are now shifting more towards trying to change a patient's disease course and really prevent long-term structural damage to the bowels and long-term complications of just prolonged inflammation and the toll that can take on someone. So it's an exciting time, honestly, but we're continuing to see newer and newer therapies and more and more treatment options. And just to go
2: off of that, you know, from a surgery standpoint too, I think, you know, we piggyback off of much of what happens with medical management. Ideally, that is the primary goal is medical management to quiet down the inflammation. And you know, by the time patients get to surgery, we are sort of an adjunct, I would say, and to kind of help manage those situations where the medications can't help patients anymore.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think surgery shouldn't be treated as a treatment of last resort. It is actually sometimes the treatment patients need. So we appreciate the assistance of our colorectal surgery colleagues like Dr. Chu.
0: Well, I think it's so important when you discuss this multidisciplinary approach. And Dr. Russ, What are some of the challenges that you've found that you'd like to share with other providers when deciding on these therapies? As you mentioned, there's biologics, there's so many new things in the pipeline, you have so much more in your toolbox that how are you deciding based on how the patient presents and their family history on these therapies and tell us some of the challenges, how you've overcome those?
1: All right. That's sort of a loaded question, Melanie, but I will try to unpack it. There's just a lot of factors that come into play. So you really have to start with one thing would just be which disease is this ulcerative colitis first Crohn's disease. You have to take into account the severity of the disease, which may be kind of what it looks like on a colonoscopy and also maybe how labs and other tests look that factor in. You have to take into account patient preferences. Do they prefer an injection over an infusion? There's things like extra intestinal manifestations that if they're present may kind of help determine which is the best therapy for them. And then also their comorbidities, you know, do they have a history of cancer? Do they have another condition that might affect the treatment choice, something like psoriasis, for which we have medicines like ustekinumab that actually treat both psoriasis and ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. So there's a lot of factors that come into play, and I think you have to sort of see a patient, do your evaluation, talk with them, find out their preferences, and usually after that you're able to kind of guide yourself at least into a couple potential options and then talk to them about the risk and benefits. And I think it is only getting more complicated as we get newer and newer therapies, some of which are in a similar category to an existing therapy. So now you have multiple treatment options that essentially target the same target in the immune system and the immune response in inflammatory bowel disease, and how do you decide between those so We're still, fortunately, getting more and more head-to-head trials that will help us hopefully kind of position these therapies, so still a lot to learn. But we've come a long way, and I think we have some kind of basic positioning at the current state of things.
0: Dr. Russ, sticking with you for just a minute as you talk about all of these various therapies and... Obviously, as you said, it depends on the diagnosis, but can you spend a minute and tell us a little bit about a holistic model of care that recognizes, because Dr. Chu mentioned it just briefly, but the complexity of these inflammatory bowel diseases, the evolving role of diet, as we're learning it in the pathogenesis and treatment of these diseases, the role that stress, I mean, now we're learning more and more about this connection and even the brain and gut connection can you tell us what we've learned what you know about this or want to share with other providers
1: yeah I think that's a great topic I think we're learning more there's still a lot to learn I think in these areas but it really is a team sport and we really need a multidisciplinary approach and these patients have you know higher instances of depression and anxiety and sort of psychosocial needs that Having a psychologist or a psychiatrist as part of the team is really crucial. I think we definitely know that diet can help with symptom control. And in the pediatric population they will actually use dietary modification instead of using steroids to treat symptoms. And there's interestingly a subset of patients that you can actually see their inflammatory markers improve by making certain dietary changes. So we definitely think diet is playing a role in symptoms and also potentially the development of the disease as it alters the microbiome and the immune response to the microbiome. So it's very important thing and i think a nutritionist is really an essential part of the team and we're fortunate to have a couple here at UAB that we consult with frequently so i think you have to take into account all those things and that's the diet is probably the most common question we get in clinic is what can i do with my diet because it's one of the few things in this situation where you have a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease everything's kind of out of your control but you can control your diet and so i think that's definitely an essential part of the team and I think we're starting to pay more attention to some of the long term quality of life i guess indicators and symptoms that that people deal with because that sometimes get overlooked issues like incontinence and urgency and certain symptoms that just haven't been at the forefront of the way we evaluate things, and just the toll that takes on people i mean patients can actually get post traumatic stress disorder from just their experience with their Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. So it's a complex illness, and the gut brain axis is very much real, and diet is definitely going to be a helpful part of treatment going forward, I think.
0: Dr. Chu, what would you like to add to that? And while you're doing that, tell us a little bit about anything exciting in your field as far as surgical interventions or how your outcomes have been. Tell us a little bit about your role in this.
2: Yeah. So I agree with everything Dr. Russ has said. The management of IBD is very much a team approach. There's just so many pieces to the puzzle here. And, you know, I got to stress too that there's no one answer, one way to do things. There's oftentimes two or three choices that need to be made. And so it's incredibly important for patients and their providers to sit together in the same room to sort of make those decisions so that everyone is at least on the same page because certainly there are no freebies in anything. Every choice, every medication, every surgery has its risk to acknowledge. I think in the surgery world, in terms of new things, you know, the operations, I got to say, still are fundamentally the same. The way we do it, though, I think is a little bit different. What I mean by that is we have always known that minimally invasive approaches to surgery is a good thing. And we have more tools now that we can use to perform minimally invasive surgery. So, meaning we can do it with laparoscopic instruments, we can do it with hand assist, and we oftentimes often use the robot too, which I'm sure many patients and providers have heard about. So those are just the different ways that we can do the surgery in a better way. I think the other thing that we do now for surgeries is we focus on the recovery itself. Right? The operation itself is oftentimes the easiest part. It's really what happens after the surgery that can be really challenging, how patients recover. And so that's an area that in the surgery world, we do a lot of things called enhanced recovery programs now for surgical patients that really helps patients just recover better and faster. And these elements of the programs are nothing fancy. They're simply best evidence practices that are already out there that people are already doing around the world, but it just organizes it and delivers it all together consistently to every patient in the right way at the right time. So I think those are some of the biggest things that are happening within the surgery world. I think IBD in particular is particularly challenging from operation standpoint because of the inflammation, because of the chronicity, because oftentimes there's redo operations. But I think we've gotten better at how we do it and how we recover patients. And I think that contributes to better outcomes now in the IBD surgery world.
0: Very well said. Dr. Chu, I'd like to give you each a final thought, what you would like to share with other providers. So Dr. Russ, starting with you, we're talking about referral here. So when do you want other providers and community physicians to know and feel that's the important time to refer to the experts at UAB Medicine in the cases of inflammatory bowel disease?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think definitely anyone that is medically refractory. So if someone's failed a couple different treatments or biologics and they still have active disease and you're not sure where to go next with their therapy, I think that's always a reasonable time to refer for a second opinion. I think in Dr. Chu's realm, referral for colorectal surgery expertise is also a great reason to refer patients here. Your community surgeon may not have as much colorectal experience and really especially for these inflammatory bowel disease patients having someone that has the expertise the experience operating hundreds if not thousands of Crohn's disease or ulcer colitis patients is really paramount and associated with better outcomes. So I think those are two reasons off the top of my head. The other common ones I would say that we get would be things like unique situations, someone with cancer and active inflammatory bowel disease. And for sort of specialty procedures, things like chromo endoscopy, when we're looking for precancerous changes in the colon, if those are identified in the community, sometimes we'll get referrals for that. So there's a lot of reasons, but those would probably be the most common.
0: Dr. Chu, last word to you, and I so appreciate that you brought up the importance of EROS, and you and I have done a podcast on that before, so listeners, you can look that up anytime you want, but I'd like you to speak just about anything exciting that you see coming down the pipeline, any research, promising therapies, anything that you would like other providers to know that you are all doing there at UAB Medicine.
2: Yeah, that's a great question and Dr. Russ may know more some about the newer medical therapies that are coming online since I do defer to my gastroenterologist colleagues for their expertise on sort of the newest biologics and the newest biosimilars that are coming out. I do think within that area of research and treatment for IBD, I think a lot of work now is focused on the diet piece that Dr. Russ had talked about in terms of what kind of diets might be the quote-unquote best diet for different situations. I think from a medication standpoint, I know there's a lot of new biologics, new ways to deliver biologics, whether orally versus the kind of the usual IV infusion and the biosimilars in terms of which combination of those drugs might be the best way to treat a patient depending on how severe the IBD is. I think in the area of research that is still active too that we still, don't, I think, have good answers to is within the microbiome itself. Certainly, that's a buzzword that you'll see a lot and hear a lot about the microbiome in your body and how that relates to diseases like IBD. And I think there certainly is a relationship. I don't think the relationship is understood yet, which is why there's so much research in this area. But the idea is that we can maybe look at certain profiles of microbiomes that can determine how severe or how a certain case of IBD might respond to treatment and be able to tailor our treatment for IBD in a much more refined and purposeful way. So I think those are some areas that are out there and I'd be curious to hear from Dr. Russ whether there's any other areas that he's seen from his side of the medical world.
1: Yeah, I I think you did a great job there, Dan. I think you hit a lot of the high points. I think you're right. Dietary modification, modulation of the microbiome. How do we do that or accomplish that? I think those are all exciting things. And I do think combination therapy... We have some emerging evidence and even clinical trials, one of which we're gonna be participating in, that it's looking at combining these biologic and small molecule therapies to get better response rates because the reality is there is a ceiling, there's a therapeutic ceiling with a lot of these drugs and we just need to do better. They don't work for everybody. And I guess maybe one, one or two more other things, one would be personalization or personalized medicine, just being able to determine which drug is the best drug for an individual patient. We're not there yet, but I think we're making progress and I think we will get there probably within the next five to 10 years. And I guess lastly, and this is maybe something you could comment on, Dan, too, is maybe an encouraging therapy for peri- anal disease, which can be incredibly difficult to treat, would be stem cell injections into the fistula tracts. And so that has shown some promising results, I know. But
2: yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Dr. Ross. So what Dr. Ross is talking about is this idea of Crohn's disease and anal rectal fistulas, which can happen in a significant portion of Crohn's patients. And these fistulas are tunnels that go from the inside of the rectum and anus out to the skin and can be notoriously difficult to close and to handle. And so there's been a lot of new research focused on finding new ways to close those fistula tracts using stem cells from patients. And essentially, it's stem cells that are harvested, they're grown, and then they're reinjected into that tract. And there's definitely been some good signals that this can have some benefit. I think there's still trials that need to be done to really kind of show exactly how much of a benefit it is. But that being said, there's great potential, and certainly the principles of that technique are good and valid. So I think there's more to come from that, but that definitely is another area of innovation within IBD treatment.
0: What an exciting time to be in your field, gentlemen. So many emerging therapies, and thank you so much for sharing your expertise today with other providers that was just excellent and so informative, a physician can refer a patient to UAB Medicine by calling the MIST line at 1-800-UAB-MIST or by visiting our website at uabmedicine.org slash physician. That concludes this episode of UAB MedCast. And for the updates on the latest medical advancements, breakthroughs, and research, just like you heard here, please follow us on your social channels. I'm Melanie Cole.